You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Imagine this. You're outside in a large field. It's dark and damp, not quite raining, just a little moist in the air. There's a gentle, cool breeze. You're taking care of the sheep, because that's what your family does. Your shepherds, you take care of sheep. Seems like a normal night, except you're all alone out in the field taking care of the sheep, because your entire family is inside the house, which is a few hundred yards away. And apparently, your dad has a special guest over for dinner tonight. And then you see a silhouette of someone running toward you. And you realize it's your family's servant running full speed toward you. You have no clue why. And when he gets to you, he says, you got to go. You go, what? You've got to go. You got to go now. Get to the house. You go, why? Just go. So you run full speed with all your might. You run across the field, you burst into the house, sweating, out of breath, and there stands your seven older brothers, your father, and a prophet, the prophet Samuel. And Samuel is there to see you, David, and to give you news that is beyond your wildest dreams, that you are to be anointed the next king of God's people, the nation of Israel. Now, many of us know that story. We've read it or heard about it, taught in Sunday school, the moment where Samuel anoints David. David is a young boy. We don't know exactly how old he was, maybe elementary school age, maybe middle school age. I like to think of him as a scraggly middle school boy wearing a oversized t-shirt with holes in it that hasn't been washed in a few days. That's my vision of David. It's probably not accurate. But this moment changes David's life forever. Sometime after this, we don't know exactly how long, but sometime after this moment, the current king, King Saul, is having some problems. There's something wrong with him. He is going mad, it seems. But what the people close to him don't realize is that God has sent a harmful spirit to Saul to torment him as a form of judgment from God on Saul for his disobedience and wickedness. It it has become apparent that King Saul has some serious character defects. And so God has sent a spirit, a harmful spirit, the Bible says, to torment him. Well, the people, people who are close to Saul, who work for him in his administration, so to speak, they're trying to figure out what to do, and they determine that Saul needs to hear music whenever he's having these fits, when he's going mad. And so they hear of, we're not sure how, they hear of David's incredible musical talents and skills, so they recruit David to come to the palace to to minister to Saul in these moments where Saul is having a a fit. David is sort of one part personal worship leader 
one part musical therapist for King Saul. And whenever Saul is having these moments where he is tormented, David sings, and it has a, a healing effect on Saul. And Saul has great appreciation for David. In fact, in 1 Samuel 16, verse 21, it says that Saul loved David greatly. Now, for those of us who know the end of the story, we know that although in this moment Saul loves David, it doesn't quite turn out that way in the end. Well, the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at this morning that Matt just read for us, Psalm 59, it has a subscript. Matt read at the beginning of that chapter, and it gives us insight as to when this chapter was written. The subscript says this, that that David wrote this psalm when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. So Psalm 59 is written by David in this moment where Saul is sending men to watch over the house of David to catch him, arrest him, and ultimately to kill him. That's when this Psalm 59 is written. And so what I'd like to do this morning is just rewind the clock a little bit and look at the events in the life of David leading up to 1 Samuel 19 so that we can have an understanding of the context that David is in, and I believe it will give us insights into Psalm 59. Let's pray, and then we'll dive more into the life of David. Father in heaven, you are so kind, so, so kind to us. God, I thank you for your Bible. I thank you for the word of God that we can read and learn from, be inspired by, be molded by. God, I thank you. I thank you that we can read this ancient book, as Pastor Jonathan said last week, this book that's, this this psalm that's 3,000 years old or more. We thank you that we can read it. And that your character is on display. That you are revealing yourself to us through these words. Thank you. And I pray now that you would use your word to sanctify us. Would you be glorified this morning through the preaching of your word. And may you cause your word to mold us to be more like Jesus. May we walk out of here this morning loving Jesus more than when we walked in. And if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who does not believe. Lord, this morning would you... Demonstrate your kindness to them. Grant them the gift of repentance. And may today they believe, I ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we read in Samuel this monumental moment where David is anointed as king. Another monumental moment in the life of David, many of us are quite familiar with, this takes place on a battlefield where David is standing across this this tall, super strong Philistine champion by the name of Goliath. And on the battlefield that day, David looks at Goliath and says, you come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. And David looks at Goliath that day and says, today I'm going to kill you. I'm going to cut off your head. I'm going to feed your body to the beast of the wilderness. You know why? So that all the world will know there is a God. In Israel. David is consumed with the glory of God being spread to the nations. He wants all the pagan nations to know that there is indeed a God in Israel. And today, he's going to prove himself. 
David slays Goliath that day. And again, it changes the trajectory of David's life. Not long after, David finds himself back in the palace singing for King Saul. And again, there are these, these moments where the harmful spirit is tormenting Saul. And Saul is literally going mad. And one day, as we read in 1 Samuel 18, David is singing and playing for Saul. And Saul is overcome with rage and anger. And he throws a spear at David. Then we realize when we examine 1 Samuel 18, this has happened at least two times during this, uh, this time period. Twice, Saul throws a javelin at David. Just imagine this for a moment. My wife and I, we sit here, we're third row, fourth row type people. Imagine on a Sunday morning, Pastor Max is up here playing the keys and singing, and I, for the third row, decide I'm going to throw a javelin at Max. In the middle of the world, just... And Max just playing the keys, he just dodges it. He's like... Praise the Father. Praise Just doesn't even skip a beat. That's what's happening here. David is singing to Saul. Saul is so overcome with anger and bitterness that he throws a spear right at David. And we know that he did this at least twice. This is just the start, of course, of Saul's quest to kill David. Over the next several chapters of Samuel, there will be 14 different moments where Saul attempts to kill David that we know of at least and there will be one other moment where he throws a spear at David. I don't know what you do when someone throws a javelin at you. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what you do. But here's what I want most people to tell you to do. We all know what you're supposed to do. If someone throws a spear at you, you know what you do? You throw it right back. That's what our culture would tell us. That seems intuitive. You're not, I, I'm not going to let you get away with that. You're not going to throw a javelin at me while I'm singing and think you're going to get away with it. Absolutely not. We do this in our lives. When someone hurts our feelings or harms us or gossips about us or says things, something about us, we feel the need, the unction. We, we feel this thing inside of us that says, oh, no, watch me throw it back at you. There's no, there's no place where this is on display better than Twitter. <laughs> listen, Twitter ain't for the faint of heart, okay? Just, I recently told someone, listen, bro, you got to get off Twitter. You, you should go to LinkedIn because it's safer over there. You, you, this ain't for you. There's sharks in the water over here. <laughs> I'm on Twitter. <laughs> There's something interesting about David, though. Something very interesting about David. He never throws the javelin back at Saul. David never takes the spear even out of the wall. He doesn't even seemingly acknowledge it. David never got good at throwing spears back. Unlike 
anyone else in spear-throwing history, David did not do what others seemingly would have done. He never threw the spear back. Now, after these two incidents in first two incidences in first Samuel 18, where David dodges them, David is then removed from the royal court and he's made a general in King Saul's army. <clears throat> and he quickly becomes a well-known general. He, it, it seems that he's actually a skilled military leader. First Samuel 18, verse 30 says, David had more success than all of the other servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. He was the most successful general in the army, so he becomes popular. David is becoming a well-known, respected celebrity of sorts in the nation of Israel. Now, it's not clear to us from the biblical text exactly when it becomes public knowledge, or at least knowledge to most people, that he had been anointed to be the next king. It, it, it seems to me that Samuel did that in some sort of secrecy, but at some point it becomes revealed. It, it's obvious that at some point Saul knows, but exactly when Saul finds out and exactly when everyone knows that David is indeed to be the next king is not entirely clear to us in the scripture. But it's obvious that David is becoming quite well known, and Saul is growing in bitterness and jealousy toward David. So, Saul has a plan to kill David, and here's what he does. He sends David and his command on these crazy military missions. They're sort of suicide missions. Like, this is a mission no one's going to do. Not even the Navy SEALs could pull this off. Surely anyone who does this is going to die. So he sends David on these missions knowing that David is going to die. But David somehow comes back. He, he defeats the enemies and makes it because God is with him. It's remarkable. And you can hear the buzz starting to grow in Israel. The, the groundswell support for David. People are calling in to the local talk radio station. Sal, long-time listener, first-time caller. Yeah, I just think Saul's reign is over. I think it's, I think it's David's turn. Right? That was the water cooler talk. Did you hear about David? He took out another guy. Did you hear he killed another Philistine this week? Man, that David, he sure is good looking. There's a, there's a popularity growing in the life of David. And there's a tension growing between Saul, the king, and the man who is now becoming the would-be heir apparent. And this is the moment Saul brings David back into the court, and the third time he throws a javelin at David. David dodges it, and yet again does not throw it back. He runs away, and he realizes that Saul has crossed a line. Where Saul is different, there's something going on, and he realizes that if he doesn't leave the nation, Saul is no doubt going to kill him. You know what David could have done? He could have started a campaign to overthrow the government and become king. And you know what? He probably would have been successful. There's enough people who had turned on Saul and who were in favor of David where it is highly likely if David had done that, he would have been successful. He would have been the king from a very early age. He could have started a smear campaign. He could have gone on NPR doing interviews, talking about how 
we need, the, the, we need to overthrow Saul. He could have done all sorts of types of things to garner support, channel that, leverage that to overthrow the king and put himself on the throne. And let's be honest, that's what most of us would have done. Right, besides, I'm the anointed king. God wants me to be king. I'm not doing anything outside of the will of God. And clearly Saul is a bad king causing harm to the nation. Look at all the social good that would be done. But David does not do that. David instead looks at Saul, sees that he is sinful and wicked and murderous, and he says, but God put you there, and it's not my job to take you off the throne. It's not my job to determine which kingdoms survive and which ones don't. It's not my job to upend a reign or to start my own. That's not my responsibility. I trust the sovereign hand of God. I trust God. And so when God sees fit to fulfill the promise he made, God will do it. And I trust him. And I do not need to take matters into my own hands. That's what David understands. So David goes home and talks to his wife. Side note, when you're in trouble, talking to your wife is always a good thing. There's a lot of wisdom there. I'm just saying. Just helping you out. It's free. It wasn't even a manuscript. Goes home and his wife has a plan to deceive the king who happens to be her father. David happened to be married to the daughter of Saul. He's like, we're going to hatch this plan to deceive my father and to get you to escape and to sneak you out of town and to sneak you out of the nation. David gets wind that Saul has sent these men after him to go watch his house, to go stalk David. And this is the moment where Psalm 59 is written. We see that David's about to go on the run, but David doesn't know how long this is going to be. We see these as his pre-king days, but David didn't see it that way. David didn't know how long this was going to last. David doesn't know, maybe Samuel misunderstood and I'm not to be king, or maybe there's some other understanding of that moment we had. David doesn't know how long he's going to be on the run, and if it's going to end, he does not know the end of the story. We do, because we could read the text. David did not. David did not know how many nights he was going to go to bed hungry and cold. David did not know how many times he would have to use a rock as a pillow in a cave. David did not know how many miles he would have to run from Saul. We don't know exactly how long David was on the run from Saul. It's on the short end, about five years, but probably closer to ten years, somewhere in that five to ten year window. When this is starting, he's probably in his early 20s, and he doesn't become king until he's 30. So you got, you got almost a decade in this moment where, where David is on the run. But it's on the front end of that where David writes Psalm 59. It's on the front end of that. And so look with me at Psalm 59, verse 1. He says this, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. David's inclination is to pray and trust that God will take care of him. People are coming against me. Saul, who I thought loved me, the king of Israel, the anointed one, put in place on the throne by God himself, has now come to kill me, sending men to stalk me, to track me down, to watch my house. Oh God, would you deliver me? Would you deliver me? 
when we read in 1 Samuel 16 and 17, we read of David taking care of sheep when he was young. And he alludes to these moments where he's fighting off wild animals. He, he's alluding to these moments where, where he fights off a lion and a bear, where, these, where there are creatures coming to, to kill the, the, the sheep that he has charge over. And in the, in the language of Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 17, he says that God delivered me. So when David's face-to-face with a bear, he says, in that moment, God delivered me. He's using the exact same language here in Psalm 1. He's saying, God, would you deliver me the way you did with the bear and the lion and the giant? Would you deliver me like you did with my enemies on those crazy military missions that Saul sent me on? Would you deliver me? And this is a great prayer to pray when you are facing difficulty in your life. Oh God, would you deliver me? And oh, by the way, I'm going to talk and remind myself of the moments where God delivered me. We, we see in this psalm David using the same language of the previous moments of deliverance. Then he says this in verse 2. Deliver me from those who work evil. Save me from bloodthirsty men. These are the men that Saul has sent to David's house to try to track him down. They're looking through the city. They're, they're rummaging through things. They're looking for him. They are bloodthirsty men. Look at verse 4. Then David says this. They're chasing me, but, in verse 4 he says, for no fault of mine. They run and make ready for nothing I've done. It's not because I did something bad or wrong. They're coming after me for no good reason. They're coming after me. Side note, there will be moments in your life where people come after you for no fault of your own. That will happen. Now, there are sometimes people will come after you because you've done something foolish or sinful and you've sort of brought it upon yourself. But there are other moments, like David is experiencing, where it will be no fault of your own. Here's how David responds in the second half of verse 4. He says to God, Awake, come to meet me and see. God, would you come and look? Look at this. Would you see? Would you meet me here in this moment? Which is a prayer we can pray whenever we face difficulty. Oh, God, will you meet me? And he will. Some of you know I'm a PhD student and I'm studying 20th century evangelicalism. And one of the most uh, prominent theologians in the 20th century is a guy by the name of Carl Henry, who's one of my heroes. And Carl Henry says this when he speaks of God. He says that God is the God that stoops, shows, and stays. God stoops down, he shows us his kindness, and he stays with us to strengthen us. He stoops, shows, and stays. This is the prayer that David is praying. Oh God, would you come meet me? Would you stoop down to me? I need you right now. Then he says this in verse 5, which is the same language he used to talk to Goliath. He says in verse 5, you, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. And the, the, the term God of hosts is, is a military term. In essence, it's like David is saying, you are the commander in chief of the armies of heaven. Which is important because David doesn't have an army, and Saul does. His foe, his enemy in this moment, Saul, has an army to chase after him. David doesn't have an army. But he goes, but I, I know somebody. The commander in chief 
of the armies of heaven. He calls upon him. This is sort of a reminder to us that while we may not have the resources in front of us to battle back against those that would come against us, we serve the commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven, the Lord God of hosts. Look at verse 6. This is David describing the men that are coming after him. He says, each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. These men are like, dog, like a pack of dogs, a wild dogs, attacking and rubbaging, going through the city. And, and, and later he says they're causing strife. In verse 14 he says, each evening they come back howling like dogs. Every day this group that Saul has sent, they're coming, they're, they're, they're wreaking havoc in the city looking for me to kill me like a wild pack of dogs. David is lamenting the fact that these men are chasing him for no good reason. But then David turns positive. Look at verse 8. He says this, But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. You, O Lord, you laugh at them. God has determined that David would be king. And there's nothing going to stop that. And anyone attempting to stop that is laughable because you're coming up against something God has determined to do. Coming against the purposes of God is laughable. We serve the God, the commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven, the God whose purposes will not be thwarted, as we read in the book of Job. If God is determined to do it, it will be done. And if you try to stop it, it's laughable. Verse 9, David says this, O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. He calls God his strength. I will watch for you. I will watch for you, O God. You are my fortress. Verse 10, he says this, My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. Because God loves me, he will meet me. He will stoop down. He will stay with me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. There's going to come a day, either on this side of eternity or on the other side of eternity. There will come a moment where all of the things that came against you will be defeated, not by you, but by Jesus. And we will look upon those things in triumph. That all of the enemies of God and all of the enemies of God's people have been defeated. And then... David focuses on the love of God. He alludes to it here in the chapter, but he ends Psalm, Psalm 16 and 17 by staking his confidence on the love of God. He says this in verse 16, I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. The God who shows me steadfast love. The God who shows you steadfast love. Steadfast, stable, strong, immovable, unshaken, upon which you can build your life. We sing praises to him because he is the God who shows us steadfast love. 
Here, David is experiencing hurt and pain at the hands of another, but he never seeks vengeance. He throws his lot with God. In life, people are going to throw spears at you. It's going to happen. I promise. We are going to face trouble in this world. Jesus promised it. Jesus also promised that people would hate us. The Apostle Peter promised that people would persecute us. The Apostle James promised that, that there would be people who make themselves our enemies. If there are going to be people who come at us, they will throw spears at you. Here is my exhortation to you. Do not throw them back. Don't ever get good at throwing spears. Don't ever master the craft of javelin throwing. Now, some people say, well, when do we defend ourselves? Isn't it right to defend yourself? That's a great question. I'll give you a couple caveats. One, if there's moments where there's been abuse or a crime committed, we seek justice. Justice is good and right. And if that means we need to bring in law enforcement or some other agency, we do that. We always seek righteousness and justice. Always. But we never take matters into our own hands. Secondly, people say, well, you're telling me someone may come at me and I, I'm never to respond to them? I would say almost never. Here's how to know when, people ask me, well, how do I know when it's time for me to speak back and defend myself? Well, first, it's, good to know, it's important to know that most of the time you should not. So assume that you shouldn't. When someone comes at you, assume it's probably not the time to defend yourself. And in the rare instance, in like the 5 to 10% of moments, where it is time to speak up, don't do it on your own. Seek counsel. Community group leader, pastor, spouse, older godly friends, get some wisdom from people, okay? My opinion, based on what I see in Scripture and what I've observed in the world, my conclusion is this, is that the only time I would ever defend myself is if it clearly brings reproach on the gospel, like, if someone is attacking me in a way that will clearly undermine the gospel message or people believing the gospel message, then it might be time to engage with that person in some way. But that's extremely rare. The vast majority of the time, 90 to 99% of the time, when someone comes at you, it will not be a gospel issue. They will come at you for no apparent reason, and you will be tempted. You will want to get back at them. Don't do it. Go to God and ask him for his deliverance. Don't throw spears. Furthermore, know this. There will be moments in your life, I promise you, there will be moments in your life where you are mistreated by someone. And the only way to stop the mistreatment is for you to mistreat them or someone else. I promise you, there will come moments in your life where you are being treated, you're being mistreated, sinfully mistreated, and the only way to stop that is for you to do to them what they're doing to you. Don't. Suffer the mistreatment. That's what David did. And that's why God called him a man after my own heart. He gets it. He trusts that when I say I'm going to deliver, that I'm going to deliver. If someone hurls an insult at you, don't throw it back. When they call you a bigot because of your commitment to biblical sexual ethics, don't respond. 
when they call you regressive or oppressive because of your willingness to stand up for the sanctity of life, don't respond. When your professor gives you a bad grade on a paper because you disagree with his secular progressive ideology, and you know the bad grade is because you disagreed with him, but you can't prove it, just suffer it. Just take it. Don't throw the spear back. When you don't get the promotion at work that you were promised or that you know you deserve, when you're unjustly fired from a job you gave your heart to, when you have a family member that humiliates you or a child that betrays you or a spouse that abandons you, when you are devastated by the sinful choices of someone close to you, someone who said they loved you, when those spears come at you, oh, City's Church, I implore you, do not throw them back. Do not master the craft of javelin throwing. There will be moments where you are tempted to do this. Don't do it. Instead, remind yourself of the steadfast love of God. I want to close this morning by reading a passage from a book. I don't fully endorse this book. I, I like a lot of it, but I don't fully endorse it. I always have to give a caveat when you do that. This book is called A Tale of Three Kings by an author by the name of Gene Edwards. In essence, it's a, it's a fictional account of the life of David. The three kings are Saul, David, and Absalom. And it's just two parts. It's David's interaction with Saul and then David's interaction with Absalom 40 years later. And the, the book sort of gives a, it's a fictional account of what it might have been like to be David during those years when Saul is chasing him down. The Bible gives us very little, you know, doesn't give us a lot of information about that era, that period of time in David's life. Gene Edwards kind of fills it in. Again, it's, it's, it's a dramatized version of it. I'm going to read a, a section of it. I've edited it a bit to make it easier to read for you. Here's what Edwards says, Gene Edwards. The place was another nameless cave. The men stirred about restlessly. Gradually and very uneasily, they settled in. And then one man spoke up. Why, David, why? It was Joab. He wanted answers. David should have seemed embarrassed, or at least defensive. He was neither. David was sort of looking past Joab, like, like a man looking into another room that only he can see. Joab walked directly in front of David, looked down on him, and began roaring his frustrations. Why, David? Why? Many times he almost speared you to death in the palace. I saw it with my own eyes. David, finally you ran away. Now for years you have been nothing but a rabbit for him to chase. Furthermore, the whole world believes the lies that he tells about you. He has come, the king himself has come, hunting every cave, every pit, every hole on earth to find you and kill you like a dog. But tonight, David, tonight you had him at the end of your spear. Tonight you could have killed him, but you did nothing. Look at us again, David. We're animals. Less than an hour ago you could have freed us. Yes, you, you could have freed us, and Israel too. Israel, Israel would be free of this mad king. Why, David, why? Why did you not end these years of misery? 
There was a long pause, an awkward silence. The men shifted uneasily. They were not accustomed to seeing David rebuked. David then responds slowly. Because, because, once, long ago, he was not mad. He was young, and he was great. Great in the eyes of man and in the eyes of God. And it was God who made him king, not men. Joab blazed back. But now he is mad, and God is no longer with him. And David, he will kill you. This time David blazed back. Better he kill me than I learn his ways. <laughs> Better he kill me than I become as he is. I shall not practice the ways that cause kings to go mad. I will not throw spears, nor will I allow hatred to grow in my heart. I will not avenge, and I will not destroy. Not now, not ever. David continued, it is better for King Saul to kill me than for me to become like him. It is better than he kill me than I become King Saul. Cities Church, in this life, there will be people who hurt you. I, uh, a few months ago, I experienced a friend who did something that deeply wounded me several months ago. And it, it's been hard. Uh, someone I trusted and loved. And it, it, it cut me deep. And um, I want to throw spears back really bad. But I've gone back to this over and over again. And just by God's providence that I'm preaching this passage, don't throw spears back. And I can say with confidence this is the right thing to do because I trust that God will deliver me in his timing. And I exhort you, City Church, to do the same. Trust that God will mete out justice as he sees fit, when he sees fit. God promised that he will deliver us. He promised it. You can trust him. You can take it to the bank. You can build your life on that promise. Don't throw spears back. And the reason I know that God will fulfill that promise, the reason I know he will fulfill that promise is because he's the type of God that fulfills promises. And the greatest example of that is the cross. In the book of Samuel, God promises to send a king. Through the lineage of David, there would come a greater king than David. A king who would reign forever. His name is Jesus. And God made good on that promise. God promised to send a king who would reign forever. And he did. He did it. He is the God who keeps his word. He is the God that stoops down to us. He shows us his kindness. And he stays with us to sustain us. We can take his promises to the bank. So when he says he will deliver us, you can trust it. Because of the cross. The cross of Christ. Where Jesus died for our sins and purchased our redemption. Where our souls were ransomed and he guaranteed us everlasting life. At the cross. Because I know my soul is ransomed. Because I know I have everlasting life. Because I know that I serve the God who will deliver I don't need to ever take matters into my own hands. I don't need to pursue vengeance. I will trust that God will deliver me. And I will never throw spears back. 
Instead, I trust in the steadfast love of God. I'm going to close this last verse from Psalm 59. Verse 17, David says, I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love, like the love that was demonstrated at the cross. And that's why we come to this table every single week. Every single week we come back to this table to remind ourselves that we serve the God who fulfills his promises, who makes good on what he says he will do. And he says, I will deliver you, he will deliver us. When he says, I will make a way for you to be redeemed, he did it. And we come to this table every week and we participate to remember that Jesus did not throw spears back at the Romans when they executed him because he had a bigger purpose in mind. The redemption of those he loves. That's you. He loves you. It's just a moment. Our pastors are going to come. They're going to serve the bread first. We invite you to participate in this meal. If you are a believer in Jesus, we welcome you to take part in this. But if you are not a believer in Jesus or if you're not sure you are, I would encourage you Don't take communion with us. Just let let the elements pass. But don't let the moment pass. Instead of taking communion with us, this morning, take Christ. Take Christ instead. If you have any questions of what that means, what it looks like to be a Christian, I'd love to have a conversation with you after the service. I'll be up here. A few of us will be up here. Feel free to come on up. I'd love to talk to you about that. But for everyone here who is a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, I invite you to come participate. We will serve the bread first. It is gluten-free, hold it, and I'll come back and lead us as we take it together. His body is a true bread. Let us serve you.